be seated. Thank you to Kevin and David for leading in Adrian's absence. Um, just to let you know, Adrian will probably take the rest of this month off uh, to just kind of um, recenter, and uh, it's been a long journey for her and for winter. And so, uh, Adrian, for those who are guests here, Adrian is our worship leader. Her husband passed away after a long illness a little over a week ago. We had the memorial service this past week, so David and Kevin filled in, and we are so grateful uh, for their both gifts and willingness to use them uh, this morning. Amen? Great time of worship. <clears throat> we are, we are uh, to use an Alabama term, we're smack dab in the middle of a uh, study of the book of Hebrews. Um, and so if this is your first time here, you're just kind of coming in late, you'll be able to catch up really quickly, but... Uh, we're right in the middle of this study of the book of Hebrews. Uh, a lot of times I, I, we go through books of the Bible and study them because we believe there's power in the Word of God. Other times we take topics and look at them. Uh, coming in the new year, uh, we'll do a series on prayer to start off the time of prayer and fasting for January. And then February, I feel led to preach on marriage and the family. And so we'll do that uh, during the month of Valentine's Day. Makes sense, I know. But it wasn't for that reason, but more because... Um, there's a lot of talk, if you haven't noticed, uh, these days about marriage and what is marriage and what is the family. And so I want to revisit that issue for us in February. But right now we're in Hebrews. And Hebrews, if you'll remember, is written to a group of people who were from Jewish descent, but now have become followers of Jesus Christ. And they've discovered that walking the Christian life is very difficult. They're undergoing persecution. They're going undergoing hardship. It is a very challenging time. And so as a result, some of them are thinking about going back to Judaism. Some of them are saying, you know, at least in Judaism, I knew the rules. Uh, I had a problem. I brought a goat. I left. The goat was killed. I left. Things were good. I knew what I was supposed to do. This Christian life is different. And we're struggling, and we're not sure if I'm winning or losing. And it's just the tension and the things that were going on were causing some of them to think about going back. The author of Hebrews, whoever it is, many people speculate Paul, we really don't know. But many, um, the author of Hebrews is trying to say to them, go back to what? Go back to what? Jesus is the greatest, fullest, final revelation of God to mankind. If he's the fullest, final, greatest, what are you going to go back to? Well, you're going to go back to less than, something that was before, something that's just a shadow of who Jesus is. Why are you going to go back? He says, in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world. He, he is saying, Jesus is greater than anything else. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the tabernacle. He's greater than the law. Jesus is greater. And really, you can put anything in the blank after Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than your problems. Jesus is greater than your health issues. Jesus is greater than whatever you want to put in the blank. Jesus is greater than. And so through the book of Hebrews, and it's a challenging book for us who are sitting here 2,000 years later, and we weren't steeped in Judaism, to understand everything that God, the author of Hebrews is saying. 
He's writing to a people who understood it well because they came from that background. They understood the meaning, the symbols, the signs behind everything. Today, we've made it to chapter 9. And he's been, in the last couple of chapters, saying that the things that were in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, things like the law, the sacrifices, all of that stuff, it was really pointing toward Jesus. It was important and it was true, but it was just a shadow of the real. That everything that came before Christ shadowed and gave witness to him, but it wasn't him. Now the reality has come. The thing that cast the shadow is here. The substance is is here. So what do we do with that? How do we kind of move from here to there? And today and next, well, two weeks from today, when I'm back, uh, these are like the heart of what he's really trying to say. And it has to do with something that is um, repulsive to many. And as a matter of fact, it's been repulsive for 2,000 years. That's the blood of Jesus Christ. There are many circles and areas, even within Christianity, that are trying to remove all conversation about the blood of Christ because of its gruesomeness. But the author of Hebrews is going to say today, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It is critical. And why it's so critical. So, hang on, i got a lot to read, a lot to go through now. For those of you who are regular tenders at Fullness, I, I can just see in your heart and your faces, where, where are the blanks? Where's the outline? I can't, because some of you, you spend more time guessing what the blanks are than you are due to listening to me, I think. I know, I see the scribbles on the paper when you don't take them home with you. Um, <laughs> and some of you are quite funny. As a matter of fact, I'm starting to collect them, uh, and someday I'll do a little a longer thing about what you thought the blank was going to be that you filled in. So, when my brother was in seminary, he had a preaching class, and um, we were in seminary at Fort, in Fort Worth, and the, the, the major church, the biggest Baptist church in really the world at the time was First Baptist Church Dallas. Uh, Dr. W.A. Criswell was pastor of First Baptist Dallas at the time, and uh, Dr. Criswell is iconic as far as preaching and legends. He was in kind of the twilight of his career, and he came over to speak to a preaching class that my brother was in about preaching, how to preach. And Dr. Criswell had this really kind of a... You had to hear his voice to really appreciate the emotion. and He could really work it. He was good. And, uh, and a godly man at that. He wasn't just... But anyway, so he took some question and answers. And, you know, these young guys, they're always trying to impress the older kind of guys. So this one guy says to Dr. Criswell, Dr. Criswell, how many points should a good sermon have? And Dr. Criswell looked at him and he said, at least one. (laughs) So this morning I'm preaching a sermon where I hope there's at least one uh, really good point, which I I believe there is. But I want us to walk through Um, this passage together. Unpack it, all of chapter 9. So I'm going to be reading a lot of scripture. Follow along. If you didn't bring your Bibles or 
forgot him or just a heathen, and you can uh, follow on the screen if, if you want to. <laughs> Next week, um, by the way, I'll be performing uh, the ceremony, the wedding ceremony for Jared and Sarah next Saturday. So next Sunday, Dan Baracco will be here preaching. I know there are a number of us who are staying over on Saturday night, and uh, so you really need to come and sing loud because there's still going to be people staying over. And by the way, everybody's invited. Uh, Sarah wanted to know, wanted you to know you all can come. I'm serious. You can all come if you want to drive to Jackson and uh, go to a wedding next Saturday. Um, it'll be fun. Um, I'm thrilled that in the Lord's sovereignty and providence, he's brought Jared and Sarah together. Um, we, we've always had warm feelings for Jared, uh, being our firstborn. <laughs> Uh, we've always thought him something special, but we love Sarah. <laughs> and we are so glad that God has brought uh, Sarah into our family and into our lives, and we're looking forward to the celebration of it this week. This past week, I was uh, writing the ceremony. I'm, I'm doing the ceremony for them. Um, they're brave enough to, to, to let me do that. And if I can get through it without crying, um, I'm taking lessons from Brian Shoup. He's teaching me how to speak without crying. So... Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's brutal around here today, and the grace of God is good. Anyway, uh, so I'm doing it next week, uh, and I was writing both the sermon and the ceremony um, at the same time kind of this week as I was going along and pre- preparing the sermon, and I was struck again by the incredible symbols that we have in this wedding ceremony, how the, the bride uh, in white comes down the aisle uh, a pure, holy bride, and how that's how God sees us as the bride of Christ, pure and holy. And listen, if we're totally honest, we know we ain't that pure and holy, right? I mean, we know the junk and stuff that's been in our lives, but because of Jesus, this is how God sees us. Many couples uh, use a unity candle or I've seen it all lately, sand, ropes, uh, anything, but something to symbolize their coming together, but God is at the center of their lives. The exchange of rings with the purity of gold and the never-ending circle uh, describes the kind of purity of their relationship for the couple and how it's supposed to be unending, it's a lifetime commitment, and how that's our relationship with God. Again, through Jesus Christ, it's a pure relationship, and it's to be an unending relationship. It's incredible how many symbols point the couple to each other and to God. You know, the marriage of a man and a woman wasn't our idea, it was God's idea. From the beginning in the book of Genesis, he said it's not good for man to be alone. So he made from man a woman. And even though he does it in grace towards us, it's not good for man to be alone. There is so much more about marriage than a man and a woman coming together and having a life together, having sex together, making babies. There's so much more because it points us, the whole marriage deal points us toward God. Even weddings in and of themselves are a time to point us toward God. And he has done this historically. 
the tabernacle, the priest, the law, all were given as part of the old covenant, but in truth, they're shadows and pictures of Jesus Christ. They're symbolic, but more than symbol, they are, they're a shadow, they're, they're cast by the real, but they're all intended to point us toward him. Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's look at Hebrews 9. He's going to speak specifically of the tabernacle today and things that go along with the tabernacle and I pray that God shows us today, uh, look up here for one second, the critical difference between tabernacle worship and the worship of Jesus Christ. So here we go, Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 5. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. So, to begin with, he begins by describing the tabernacle. Now, just as a reminder, the tabernacle of Moses was the tent in the desert. And the tabernacle lasted for really hundreds of years until Solomon built the temple. And the temple was designed after the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was designed according to God's specific and very specific directions that were given to Moses. And so the author of Hebrews has kind of given us an idea of what the tabernacle was like. He said, you come in and the, you're in the holy place, which is where people could go. And the priest ministered in the kind of outer court of the temple. And then you come into the inner court or the holiest place, the most holy place, the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant, you remember the Ark of the Covenant, where they put the Ten Commandments, some of you, you, the only familiarity you have with the Ark of the Covenant is Raiders of the Lost Ark, you see it in your head, you've got Harrison Ford already running through the woods and all that stuff, but in the Ark of the Covenant, there was the staff of Aaron that budded, there were the jars of manna from the desert, there were the, the Ten Commandments on the stone, all of that was I, I don't have time, but all of it was symbolic and shadows of who Jesus Christ is. And then you had the cover on the top of the ark with the two cherubim kind of designed. And this ark, this top of the ark is called the, the mercy seat or the place of atonement. It's where the priest, during the one day of the year, the day of atonement, would, they would kill a lamb, they would come in, they would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat and this is so incredible. We're going to talk about this a little more in two weeks. I'm just kind of giving you a preview of the mercy seat because Paul uses it dramatically in the book of Romans. And so he sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the, sins of the people. So he's given them a picture. They already know the picture of the tabernacle. They're well-versed in it. We, not so much. But he's just kind of listing them off. He's not doing it in order to say, here's where Jesus is in every one of these. He's just giving them a picture of the tabernacle. So much so, he says, he realizes he's getting carried away, I think. And he says, I I can't discuss these things in detail now. So that's not the whole purpose. And so I'm I'm going to 
I'm going to skip it too. I, don't, I, I would like to, and maybe in the future we'll come back and we'll discuss all the parts of the tabernacle and how they point to Jesus. But that's not really the point he's trying to make now. Look at verses 6 through 10. Here's where he's headed. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the excuse me, for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. He said, this is an illustration, symbol, shadow for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered we're not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the end of the new order, or the time of the new order, excuse me. Everything in the tabernacle was designed to minister to people and the sins of the people. And it was a very active place, 24 hours a day, Worship was going on, sacrifices were going on, things were going on. So if at 2 o'clock in the morning you woke up and realized you had sinned and you wanted to take care of your sin, you could go to the tabernacle at 2 in the morning, find a priest and say, hey, I messed up, and here's what the priest would basically say, kill a goat. Kill a goat, offer the sacrifice of the goat, and then go on your way. There's a lot of blood, a lot of sacrificing, a lot of activity. It's why they needed all these priests. It's why they needed all these animals. It's why everything was going on. But there's a big point here that the author of Hebrews is trying to make. He's saying there's a problem with the tabernacle kind of worship. It takes care of the outer, but it really doesn't take care of your greatest problem, which is your conscience, the inner. He says it had no ability to clear your conscience. It took care of the penalty for the sin, but not the problem of the sin. You hear me? Um, and, And some people are looking just for a penalty to get released. They're not looking for their problem to be solved. The tabernacle was merely a symbol, an illustration, a shadow. The symbol isn't the point. The point is what's behind it. Making making the the symbolic sacred just messes things up. Are you with me? Whenever we take something that's symbolic and make it sacred... Things get all screwy. In the book of Amos, and there are a lot of passages where it says, God doesn't desire sacrifice. What he desires is a broken and contrite heart. Well, if God didn't desire sacrifice, then why did he ever tell them to do it? Well, the problem was they had started taking what he had given them that was supposed to point toward him, and they made it the big thing rather than God the big thing. In Amos, for instance... God gets to the point where he says this, and God doesn't say, I hate, a lot. But here in Amos, he says, I hate, 
I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your hearts, but let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. What was God looking for? He was looking for a people whose hearts were completely his. A people who walked in justice and righteousness. But what were they doing? They were saying, this is one whale of a party God gave us to give. We love the songs. We love gathering together. These feast days are awesome. Now, where did the feast days, the burnt sacrifices, the gatherings, where did all that come from? It all came from God. But it it came from him again as a sign to point the people toward him, not for the people to be reveling in their stuff. By the way, as gently as I can say this, and you know I'm real, I'm gentle, um, we, we do the same thing. Rather than loving God with all that we are, we start to love the stuff more than we love God. We can make worship an idol. I love those songs. I love the way it makes me feel when I get to come to church and sing those songs and raise my hands and dance and do whatever. I love the way I feel. Listen, the way you feel is really not the point. The point is not the songs. The point is not. The point is the point. God. It's supposed to point us to him so that our hearts are turned to him totally and completely. We make stuff sacred so that if somebody changes the stuff what do we think oh they're not godly hello are you with me look if 25 years ago i had walked into first baptist church kaufman texas which was where i was a minister of music um, at the time, and worn this outfit and done this with this band, they would have thought we had lost it. Why? Because the dress and the style of music had become sacred. Now, I'm not beating up on First Baptist Church Kaufman. Um, great place, great people, but typical of what we do in church life. It's typical of our humanity to take something that is symbolic, something that points us to God and make it sacred. Somebody should say amen. If I came in, and just to let you know that you're not above all this, if I came in, like I said, in a suit and tie, and we did nothing but hymns with a piano and organ last week, some of you would thought, Ichabod over the whole. God's left. God declared Michelob over the whole place. He's gone. Why? Because we like what we like. At First Baptist Church, Kaufman, Texas, they asked me to do some stuff to kind of change the worship. I didn't think of it. They wanted to kind of do some things to kind of make some changes. So I thought they wanted me to. So I did. So I, I you know, it wasn't my first rodeo in Baptist churches. I know that you don't institute change just like this. You've got to kind of build it. 
uh, up um, and move into it. So I went around to all the Sunday school classes, and I talked about how Paul teaches that we are to greet each other, sing to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and that there's a difference between a psalm and a spiritual song and a hymn, and that really all we were doing in church was singing hymns, uh, which were songs of human composure to God. I, I had it down, and it was good. <laughs> I'll never forget uh, James Wimpy, and that was his real name, Mr. Wimpy, coming up to me and saying, Son, and he put his finger right on my chest. Son, I don't care if it's biblical. I don't like it. Don't do it. To me, I was stunned. I mean, I knew there were people who probably didn't like it, but I didn't know there was somebody who would say, I don't care if it's, not, if it's biblical. I don't like it. Don't do it. What had happened in Mr. Wimpy's heart? The symbolic, maybe nothing, but I don't know, I can't judge that, but the symbolic had become sacred for him. So much so that when somebody touched it, he felt like they were not of God. We are creatures that love the symbolic, but the symbolic is not where God is leading us. Listen, the wedding ceremony is not the pinnacle of your life. Hello? The wedding ceremony is about the marriage. It's about the life that's beginning with this couple and pointing them toward God. It's not an end unto itself. I mean, who wants the wedding and not the spouse? Wait, wait, that's rhetorical. (laughs) Don't answer out loud. Don't hit your... If we're not careful, that's where things end up. When we choose to elevate ritual above reality, we are guilty of being a people who love and long for merely tabernacle worship. Verses 11 and following. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, I'm going to go on and read this passage, but what he's saying is, there is a tabernacle that's not here. Well, where is it? Well, he's going to say it's in heaven. What does it look like? We don't know, but it must look similar to what it looked like... God gave very specific directions to Moses for what the tabernacle was to look like on earth. What does it look like in heaven? We can only speculate, but he's saying that Jesus is taking us into the most holy place. The tabernacle that is in heaven, God is looking and longing to build within our hearts. By the way, do you know what the word tabernacle even means? Anyone? Anyone? Huh? Dwelling. It means dwelling. So where is God looking to make his tabernacle today? In us. We are the tabernacles. And the reality of what's in heaven and the symbolic that was in the earthly tabernacle, God is looking to make his dwelling 
in each and every one of us. He goes on and says, The blood of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. Again, the problem, outwardly clean but not inwardly. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Hallelujah. Everything else was about the outward. Now Jesus comes and sacrifices his life and his blood was shed on the cross so that our greatest problem could be dealt with, our conscience could be cleared. We may be free from guilt. We could be free from sin. Now we are free to do what? Serve the living God. This is the great news. Everything we do is external. It's tabernacle worship. Only God could do what was necessary to cleanse our conscience and really change us. In verse 8, back in verse 8, it said, The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. If we want to get into the presence of God, the most holy place, we can't, we can't get there by tabernacle practices. Or, do you understand what I'm saying? If you want to get into the most holy place, the presence of God, if you want to go boldly before God's throne, which is what he's leading up to in chapter 10, you can't do it by your own effort or by your own might. The length of your prayers is really irrelevant when it comes to getting into the presence of God. Some of you may, well, wait a minute, does prayer not matter? Yeah, prayer matters, but you get to pray because Jesus already takes you into the presence of God. It's not about the quality of your prayers. It's not about the, the, the length of them or the, the greatness of the words. It's not about how loud you sing or about how high you raise your hands. It's not about how wildly you dance or how boldly you proclaim. You do those things because you're free to serve the living God because Jesus has already cleared your conscience. You don't do it to get into his presence. You do because you have the privilege of serving the living God. Do you see the difference? For some of us, we're trying so hard still. We're trying so hard still to get God to like us. If I just do this a little more, if I just do this a little harder, if I just, if I kill another goat, so to speak, maybe God won't be mad at me anymore. Listen, God did it all by Jesus going to the cross. Your conscience can be cleared. Let me say this. Tabernacle worship has got to be pulled down. It's got to be pulled down. What he's about to say is this, and it's a long passage. I'm going to kind of move through it quickly. He's saying this, as long as the old tabernacle is still standing, the new tabernacle won't work. Hello? As long as the old tabernacle is still there, even with Jesus, they had to pull down the old so that the new could take place. 
verse 15 and following. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Again, this is a great section. We'll, We'll revisit the idea. Jesus' death on the cross was not just for sins present, sins future, our sins. He actually was dying for all the sins that were covered by all those goats and lambs and everything that was killed prior to that covered the sins of the people. Those sins weren't really taken care of eternally. They were just covered for a period of time. It was a temporary deal. But when Jesus came, he died so that those sins were taken care of, sins of the people there and the sins of people future, like me and you, were handled. He handled it all. Okay, verses 16. I'm going to go through the end of the chapter. It's a long passage, but keep in mind, he's talking about these same principles that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And for the For the new to come in, the old has to be done away with. And he talks about it in the case of a will. It is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because the will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. Hello? I mean, you get the concept? Oh, you know, daddy's got some money. Let's go get daddy's money. Well, daddy's still living. I mean, the will's not in effect as long as dad's still alive. It leads us to all other problems, but this is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll in all the people. He's even saying even the old covenant stuff, something had to die in order for things to happen. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. By the way, those are the words of Moses echoed in the words of Christ at the Lord's Supper. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Everybody following along? You with me so far? This passage gets pretty thick. It's pretty thick. Christ entered into heaven, which is the real, not a copy. And he did it by the presentation of his own blood. He did it in a way that it was cleansed. Now, you might be thinking, why would something in heaven need to be cleansed? Well, um, I think the best explanation, though there are many, and many people are quite, they love to discuss what's taking place here. I think the best discussion is, the problem is not that, the problem is us who is in that. You know, when we go there, it's our stuff. It's our sins that had to be covered and taken care of. So his blood covers those things. He goes on and says, this isn't a sacrifice that has to take place over and over and over again. He says, nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. 
then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. He did it once. It covered everything, past, present, future. Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face the judgment, so Christ has sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. I mean, the author of Hebrews covers it all in this chapter, doesn't he? He's covering the sacrifice and the tabernacle and Jesus moving to the new coming. Now we've moved on to the second coming. Here's my one point. It's this. All of our hope is in him. And all of our hope is not in him as a teacher, as a great man. All our hope is in him as the son of God who shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. We can become very eloquent. We can become very confusing. We can become very religious, but if we don't receive the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, we're stuck. We're stuck. We're far away. We'll never have a relationship with God. If Christ, as the Son of God, didn't die for us, we have no hope. None. In 1955, Billy Graham was um, well-known. He had become really a really famous person preaching. And remarkably, Cambridge University in England, led by a little group of Christians, invited Billy Graham to come and preach a series of sermons for one week in November of 1955. He was pretty astounded that they would ask him to come. Guess what? So were a lot of other people. The British press, the Times of London began to run articles criticizing the fact that Billy Graham, this southern preacher, was going to come and speak at Cambridge. That he was coming to one of their elite universities. One of the letters said something like this. I'm sure Billy Graham is a very sincere person, but he's a fundamentalist. He's a person who believes you have to be saved through the blood of Jesus, and fundamentalist Christianity is bad for us. And besides that, it will never have an impact on the elite young men and women of Europe. Well, Billy Graham decided he was going to go, but um, he was a little bit freaked out as well. And so he and the people around him were reading all of this stuff and the criticism about him, and he was very intimidated, actually, he said later. So he prepared eight messages because he was going to preach at Great St. Mary's Church, which is the central church Cambridge only had about 8,000 people at the time. Great St. Mary's held less than 2,000. But more than 2,000 showed up every night to hear Billy Graham speak. 
It was packed out. People were sitting on the floors. They were out the doors. So Billy Graham prepared these incredibly brilliant talks. Very different than what he usually wrote. They were very erudite. They were very intellectual. In fact, he said he felt like he had to preach like John Stott, who was a famous British preacher, in order to be heard by the people. He wanted to match his audience. For three nights, the place was packed out. He preached his sermons, and absolutely nothing happened. But on Wednesday night, he comes. The place is packed out with students and Cambridge faculty. And Billy Graham just put his prepared sermon aside and said this. Tonight, I'm just going to tell you about the cross of Jesus Christ. And for the next, I don't know how long it lasted, it was one of the longest sermons he ever preached. He started at Genesis and went all the way through Revelation and talked about the blood of Christ. One of his friends, Dick Lucas, who was there, said this, I'll never forget that night. I was in the totally packed chancel, sitting on the floor with the Regis Professor of Divinity, sitting on one leg and the chaplain of a college who was a future bishop on the other. Both of these were very good men, but completely against the idea that you needed salvation from sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. So dear Billy got up that night, threw away his message, and he began at Genesis, and he went right through the whole Bible and talked about every single sacrifice you can imagine. The blood was just flowing all over the place, everywhere for over an hour. Both my neighbors were terribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ. It was everything they disliked and everything they dreaded, but at the end of the sermon, Billy Graham dismissed the audience and invited anyone who wanted to stay behind to make a commitment to Christ. And that night, to everyone's shock, 400 young men and women stayed. Cambridge undergraduates and graduates. Dick, um, later on, remembers meeting a young curate, a brilliant young Cambridge student who went on into the ministry, talked to him several years later, and Dick asked him, where did Christian things begin for you? To which the young man replied, oh, Cambridge in 1955. Dick asked him, where? He said, a Billy Graham mission. What night? It was Wednesday. How did it happen? He said, I don't know. All I know is that when I walked out of there that night, finally I realized Jesus Christ really died for me. He had been a good person. He had been trying really hard. He had gone to Cambridge with the intent of studying for the ministry. But that night, he realized he needed a Savior. That night, his life was transformed. Dick essentially went on to say, it was unbelievable to the faculty around me that a young man like that, preaching a sermon like that, could have totally changed the lives of young men and women like that. But it did because the blood of Jesus Christ has power. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones 
a well-known British preacher, used to ask people this question. He'd say, are you a Christian? And many times people would say, well, I'm trying. And he would say back to them, in other words, you have no idea what being a Christian is all about. Are, Are you with me? It's not about my trying. It's about his work on the cross. Here's the question that I want us to really, really think about. Are you, are we, trying to live in the tabernacle of personal effort? Or are we receiving the once and for all sacrifice that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ? And even if we receive that once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, there's something about the way we operate that keeps making us try to go back to tabernacle worship. Tear it down. Let it go. Walk in the grace of Jesus Christ and the freedom that comes in him. And then you know what will happen? You will have freedom to serve. It's not like you don't do anything. You serve the living God, but you don't do it in order to try and get him to like you. You do it because he loves you and has set you free and filled you with his presence. Revelation 21.3 says, Look, God's dwelling place, God's tabernacle is now among the people and he will dwell with them. Lord, we thank you this morning that your dwelling place is among us, that you live here inside each and every one of us. And Lord, we are so very grateful. Lord, I pray that we will quit underestimating the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we will not be offended by it, but we would receive it for what it is. It is life to us. But Lord, we would tear down the the tabernacle of personal effort And instead, Lord, we would receive the forgiveness that comes through your life. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today who has not really received Jesus as the one who leads their life and forgives their sins and has not really appropriated the blood of Jesus Christ to who they are, that today, Lord, would be that day. For those of us who have, but keep going back to trying to please you through our own effort, Lord, forgive us. May we walk in freedom and in grace today. Lord, we thank you. We bless you. We praise you. We rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Look, if you'd like to talk to anyone after the service is over, we'll have a couple of our ministry teams under the prayer and worship banners. If you would like to speak with someone or have someone pray with you that this sermon has impacted you in a way that you would say, I I need to follow up with someone right now, come to one of those teams. We're about to take up an offering, which we declare is an act of worship before God. This is not something we do out of duty or obligation. This is not a tabernacle effort, right? This is because we love God and because we get the privilege of serving him. And as you prepare your offering, if you're a guest, there's a white card. Take it out, fill it out. So we can pray for you. If you'd like one of us to contact you this week, put it on the card and we will. 
prayer requests on that card would be awesome. We'd love to have the opportunity to pray for you. Andre's got a couple of opportunities of service.